Book One, Part Two of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Naso. Translated by Brooks Moore. Book One, Part Two. And now his thunderbolts would Jove wide scatter. But he feared the flames, unnumbered, sacred ether, might ignite and burn the axle of the universe. And he remembered, in the scroll of fate, there is a time appointed when the earth and sea and heavens shall melt, and fire destroy the universe of mighty labor wrought. Such weapons, by the skill of Cyclops forged, for different punishment he laid aside, for straightway he preferred to overwhelm the mortal race beneath deep waves and storms from ever-reigning sky and instantly he shut the north wind in aeolian caves and every other wind that might dispel the gathering clouds he bade the south wind blow the south wind flies abroad with dripping wings concealing in the gloom his awful face the drenching rains descends from his wet beard and hoary locks dark clouds are on his brows and from his wings and garments drip the dews his great hands press the overhanging clouds loudly the thunders roll the torrents pour. Iris, the messenger of Juno, clad in many-colored raiment, upward draws the streaming moisture to renew the clouds. The standing grain is beaten to the ground. The rustic's crops are scattered in the mire, and he bewails the long years' fruitless toil. The wrath of Jove was not content with powers that emanate from heaven. He brought to aid his azure brother, lord of flowing waves who called upon the rivers and the streams and when they entered his impearled abode neptune their ancient ruler thus began a long appeal is needless pour ye forth in rage of power open up your fountains rush over obstacles let every stream pour forth in boundless floods thus he commands and none dissenting all the river gods return and opening up their fountains, roll tumultuous to the deep, unfruitful sea. And Neptune with his trident smote the earth, which trembling with unwanted throes heaved up the sources of her waters bare, and through her open plains the rapid rivers rushed resistless, onward bearing the waving grain, the budding groves, the houses, sheep and men, and holy temples and their sacred urns. The mansions that remained, resisting vast and total ruin, Deepening waves concealed and whelmed their tottering turrets in the flood and roiling gulf. And now one vast expanse, the land and sea were mingled in the waste of endless waves, a sea without a shore. One desperate man seized on the nearest hill. Another, sitting in his curved boat, plied the long oar where he was wont to plough. Another sailed above his grain, above his hidden dwelling, and another hooked a fish that sported in a leafy elm. Perchance an anchor dropped in verdant fields, or curving keels were pushed through tangled vines, and where the gracile goat enjoyed the green, unsightly seals reposed. Beneath the waves were wandering nereids, viewing cities, groves, and houses. Dolphins darting amid the trees, meshed in the twisted branches, beat against the shaken oak trees. There the sheep, afraid, swim with the frightened wolf. The surging waves float tigers and lions. 
availeth not his lightning shock the wild boar, nor avails the stag's fleet-footed speed. The wandering bird, seeking unambiguous groves and hidden vales, with wearied pinion droops into the sea. The waves increasing surge above the hills, and rising waters dash on mountain-tops. Myriads by the waves are swept away, and those the waters spare, for lack of food, starvation slowly overcomes at last. A fruitful land and fair, but now submerged beneath a wilderness of rising waves. Twixt Oeta and Ionia and Phocis lies, where through the clouds Parnassus summits twain point upwards to the stars, unmeasured height, save which the rolling billows covered all. There in a small and fragile boat arrived, Duocalion and the consort of his couch, prepared to worship the Corosian nymphs, the mountain deities, and Themis kind, who in that age revealed in oracles the voice of fate. And as he, no other lived so good and just, as she, no other feared the gods. When Jupiter beheld the globe in ruin covered, swept with wasting waves, and when he saw one man of myriads left, one helpless woman left of myriads lone, both innocent and worshipping the gods, he scattered all the clouds. He blew away the great storms by the cold north wind. Once more the earth appeared to heaven, and the skies appeared to earth. The fury of the main abated, for the ocean ruler laid his trident down, and he pacified the waters, and called on azure Triton. Triton rose above the waving seas, his shoulders mailed in purple shells. He bade the triton blow, blow in a sounding shell, the wandering streams and rivers to recall with signal known, a hollow wreath trumpet, tapering wide and slender stemmed, the triton took a main, and wound the pearly shell at midmost sea. Betwixt the rising and the setting suns, the wildered notes resounded shore to shore, and as it touched his lips, wet with the brine beneath his dripping beard, sounded retreat, and all the waters of the land and sea obeyed. Their fountains heard and ceased to flow, their waters subsided, hidden hills uprose, emerged the shores of ocean, channels filled with flowing streams, the soil appeared, the land increased its surface as the waves decreased, and after length of days the trees put forth, with ooze on bending boughs, their naked tops. And all the wasted globe was now restored, but as he viewed the vast and silent world, Duocalion wept, and thus to Pyrrha spoke, O sister, wife, alone of women left, my kindred in descent and origin, dearest companion of my marriage bed, doubly endeared by deepening dangers born, of all the dawn and eve behold of earth. But you and I are left, for the deep sea has kept the rest. And what prevents the tide from overwhelming us? Remaining clouds affright us. How could you endure your fears if you alone were rescued by this fate? And who would then console your bitter grief? Oh, be assured, if you were buried in the waves, that I would follow you and be with you. O oh, would that by my father's art I might restore the people, and inspire this clay to take the form of man. Alas, the gods decreed, and only we are living. Thus do Achaelian's plaint to Pyrrha. And they wept, and after he had spoken they resolved to ask the aid of sacred oracles. And so they hastened 
to Cephissian waves, which rolled a torbid flood to channels known. Thence, when their robes and brows were sprinkled well, they turned their footsteps to the goddess's fane. Its gables were befouled with reeking moss, and on its altars every fire was cold. But when the twain had reached the temple steps, they fell upon the earth, inspired with awe, and kissed the cold stone with their trembling lips, and said, If righteous prayers appease the gods, and if the wrath of high celestial powers may thus be turned, declare, O Themis, whence and what the art may raise humanity. O gentle goddess, help the dying world. Moved by their supplications, she replied, Depart from me, and veil your brows, ungoard your robes, and cast behind you, as you go, the bones of your great mother. Long they stood in dumb amazement. Pyrrha, first a voice, refused the mandate, and with trembling lips implored the goddess to forgive. She feared to violate her mother's bones, and vex her sacred spirit. Often pondered they the words involved in such obscurity, repeating oft, and thus do Achelian, to Epimetheus's daughter, uttered speech of soothing import. Oracles are just, and urge not evil deeds, or naught avails the skill of thought. Our mother is the earth, and I may judge the stones of earth are bones that we should cast behind us as we go. And although Pyrrha, by his words, was moved, she hesitated to comply. Both, amazed, doubted the purpose of the oracle, but deemed no harm to come of trial. They, descending from the temple, veiled their heads, and loosed their robes, threw some stones behind them. It was much beyond belief, were not receding age's witness, hard and rigid stones, assumed a softer form, enlarging as their brittle nature changed to milder substance, till the shape of man appeared, imperfect and faintly outlined at first, as marble statue chiseled in the rough. The soft, moist parts were changed to softer flesh, the hard and brittle substance into bones. The veins retained their ancient name. And now the god supreme ordained that every stone Duochelian threw should take the form of man, and those by Pyrrha cast should woman's form assume. And so we are hardy to endure and prove by toil and deeds from what we sprung. And after this the earth spontaneous produced the world of animals, when all remaining moistures of miry fens fermented in the sun, and fruitful seeds in soils nutritious grew to shapes ordained. So, when the seventh streamed Nile from oozy fields returneth duly to her ancient bed, the sun's ethereal rays impregnate the slime, that, happily, as the peasants turn the soil, they find strange animals, unknown before some in the moment of their birth, and some deprived of limbs, imperfect, often part alive, and part of slime inanimate, are fashioned in one body. Heat, combined with moisture, so conceives, and life results from those two things. For though the flames may be the foes of water, everything that lives begins in humid vapor, and it seems discordant concord is the means of life. When earth spread over with diluvian ooze, felt heat, ethereal from the glowing sun, unnumbered species to the light she gave, and gave to being many an ancient form, or monster new created. Unwilling she created thus enormous python, 
thou unheard of serpent spread so far athwart the side of a vast mountain didst fill with fear the race of new created man the god that bears the bow a weapon used till then only to hunt the deer and agile goat destroyed the monster with a myriad darts and almost emptied all his quiver till envenomed gore oozed forth from livid wounds lest in a dark oblivion time should hide the fame of this achievement sacred sports are instituted from the python called the pythian games in these the happy youth who proved victorious in the chariot race running and boxing with an honoured crown of oak leaves was enwreathed the laurel then was not created wherefore phoebus bright and godlike beauteous with his flowing hair was wont to wreathe his brows with various leaves daphne the daughter of a river god was first beloved by phoebus the great god of glorious light twas not a cause of chance but out of cupid's vengeful spite that she was fated to torment the lord of light for phoebus proud of python's death beheld that impish god of love upon a time when he was bending his diminished bow and voicing his contempt in anger said what wanton boy are mighty arms to thee great weapons suited to the needs of war the bow is only for the use of those large deities of heaven whose strength may deal wounds mortal to the savage beasts of prey and who courageous overcome their foes it is a proper weapon to the use of such as slew with arrows python huge whose pestilential carcass vast extend covered content thee with the flames thy torch enkindles fire is too subtle for my thought and leave to me the glory that is mine to him undaunted venus's son replied o phobus thou canst conquer all the world with thy strong bow and arrows but with this small arrow i shall pierce thy vaunting breast and by the measure that thy might exceeds the broken powers of thy defeated foes so is thy glory less than mine no more he said but with his wings expanded thence flew lightly to parnassus lofty peak there from his quiver he plucked arrows twain most curiously wrought of different art one love exciting one repelling love the dart of love was glittering gold and sharp the other had a blunted tip of lead and with that dull lead dart he shot the nymph but with the keen point of the golden dart he pierced the bone and marrow of the god immediately the one with love was filled the other scouting at the thought of love rejoiced in the deep shadow of the woods and as the virgin phoebe who denies the joys of love and loves the joys of chase a maiden's fillet bound her flowing hair and her pure mind denied the love of man beloved and wooed she wandered secret paths for never could her modesty endure the glance of man or listen to his love her grieving father spoke to her alas my daughter i have wished a son-in-law and now you owe a grandchild to the joy of my old age but daphne only hung her head to hide her shame the nuptial torch seemed criminal to her she even clung caressing with her arms round his neck and pled my dearest father let me live a virgin always for remember jove did grant it to diana at her birth but though her father promised her desire her loveliness prevailed against their will for phobus when he saw her waxed distraught 
and filled with wonder his sick fancy raised delusive hopes, and his own oracles deceived him. As the stubble in the fields flared up, or as the stacked wheat is consumed by flames, enkindled from a spark or torch, the chance pedestrian may neglect at dawn. So was the bosom of the god consumed, and so desire flamed in his stricken heart. He saw her bright hair waving on her neck. How beautiful, if properly arranged! He saw her eyes like stars of sprinkling fire, her lips for kissing sweetest, in her hands and fingers, in her arms, her shoulders white as ivory. And whatever was not seen, more beautiful, must be. Swift as the wind from his pursuing feet, the virgin fled, and neither stopped nor heeded as he called, O nymph, O Daphne, I entreat thee stay, it is no enemy that follows thee. Why, so the lamb leaps from the raging wolf, and from the lion runs the timid fawn, and from the eagle flies the trembling dove. All hasten from their natural enemy, but I alone pursue for my dear love. Alas, if thou shouldest fall and mar thy face, or tear upon the bramble thy soft thighs, or should I prove unwilling cause of pain? The wilderness is rough and dangerous, and I beseech thee, be more careful. I will follow slowly. Ask of whom thy wilt, and thou shalt learn that I am not a churl. I am no mountain-dweller of rude caves, nor clown compelled to watch the sheep and goats. And neither canst thou know from whom thy feet fly fearful, or thou wouldest not leave me thus. The Delphic land, the Petarian whelm, Claros and Tenedos revere my name, and my immortal sire is Jupiter. The present, past, and future are through me, in sacred groves, revealed to man, and from my harp the harmonies of sound are borrowed by their bards to praise the gods. My bow is certain, but a flaming shaft surpassing mine has pierced my heart, untouched before. The art of medicine is my invention, and the power of herbs. But though the world declare my useful works, there was no herb to medicate my wound, and all the arts that save have failed their lord. But even as he made his plaint, the nymph, with timid footsteps, fled from his approach, and left him to his murmurs and his pain. Lovely the virgin seemed as the soft wind exposed her limbs, and as the zephyrs fond fluttered amid her garments, and the breeze fanned lightly in her flowing hair. She seemed most lovely to his fancy in her flight, and mad with love he followed in her steps, and silent hastened his increasing speed. As when the greyhound sees the frightened hare flit over the plain, with eager nose outstretched, impetuous, he rushes on his prey, and gains upon her till he treads her feet, and almost fastens in her side his fangs. But she, whilst dreading that her end is near, is suddenly delivered from her fright. And so it was with the god and virgin, one with hope pursued, the other fled in fear, and he who followed, borne on wings of love, permitted her no rest, and gained on her, till his warm breath mingled in her hair. Her strength spent, pale and faint, with pleading eyes she gazed upon her father's waves, and prayed, Help me, my father, if thy flowing streams have virtue. Cover me, O mother earth, destroy the beauty that has injured me or change the body that destroys my life. Before her prayer was ended, torpor seized on all her body, and a thin bark closed around her gentle bosom, and her hair became as moving leaves, 
Her arms were changed to waving branches, and her active feet, as clinging roots, were fastened to the ground. Her face was hidden with encircling leaves. Phobus admired and loved the graceful tree, for still, though changed, her slender form remained, and with his right hand lingering on the trunk, he felt her bosom throbbing in the bark. He clung to the trunk and branch as though to twine, his form with hers, and fondly kissed the wood that shrank from every kiss. And thus the god, although thou canst not be my bride, thou shalt be called my chosen tree, and by green leaves, O laurel, shall forever crown my brows, be wreathed around my quiver and my lyre. The Roman heroes shall be crowned with thee, as long processions climb the capital, enchanting throngs proclaim their victories. And as a faithful warden, thou shalt guard the civic crown of oak leaves fixed between thy branches, and before Augustan gates. And as my youthful head is never shorn, so also shalt thou ever bear thy leaves unchanging to thy glory. Here the god, Phobus Apollo, ended his lament, and unto him the laurel bent her boughs, and so lately fashioned, and it seemed to him her graceful nod gave answer to his love. End of Book One, Part Two